Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Security Insider podcast with Aziel. And today we are talking about driving security outcomes using behavioral economics with Alex Webling from Resilience Outcomes. Alex, welcome to the podcast and how are you? Thank you very much, John. Yeah, no, I'm well. Lovely Brisbane weather here. Fantastic. Well, it's probably better than the uh, the Melbourne weather we've got down here today, which is a bit overcast, but that's okay. Alex, perhaps you can kick off by telling us a little bit about your background and then I want to sort of get into what is behavioral economics and what is its relevance to security? Sure. Thank, thanks very much, John. Look, um, uh, I've been in, uh, in the security game now for more than 20 years, uh, most of that in, uh, in the national security field. Uh, I sort of worked in things like the uh, Olympic Games, for those people who remember 2000 and uh, in the protective security area. And uh, but since then, I've been working in. Uh, I worked in uh, a lot of national security areas uh, within the government, and left in 2012 um, as uh, a consultant director of Resilience Outcomes. And uh, Resilience Outcomes is really a company that tries to take uh, all of the best learnings uh, from uh, from my experience in government um, and provide that as a service to uh, organisations to help them become more resilient. And, um, you know, I, I suppose we, we focus on information security um, for, for organisations, uh, primarily uh, government, uh, but also uh, private sector organisations that need to do information security properly and well and reliably. And I suppose that brings us to the idea of behavioural economics and um, uh, it, it may be worth and uh, indulge me, uh, John, if, if I just sort of give you the, the quick, you know, five, five minute uh, background on what behavioural economics uh, is for those people who haven't actually sort of uh, been keeping up to it. I'm assuming this is sort of related to the work that Richard Thaler and his partners were doing back in the 1980s for the British government around tax payments and other things. Absolutely, absolutely. And it goes back a little bit further than that to a guy called Daniel Kahneman and, uh, and his research partner, Amos Tversky. Uh, um, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce that, but uh, uh, he and his partner uh, won the Nobel Prize in economics, so the, the pseudo-Nobel Prize, um, for for his work in um, in behavioral economics and 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 this was the insight that um, contrary to popular belief and probably we all know that um, most people aren't rational um, in their decision making and, and 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 you know these are the things that win you a win you a Nobel Prize but um, it, in some ways it's it's important because uh, a lot of uh, um, economic study assumes that people are rational, in large groups at least, um, even if individual people as outliers do irrational things. But, but the reality is that they're not. And, and then the question is, well, why don't people make rational decisions all the time? Why don't people, I don't know, eat the amount that they should to keep themselves fit? Uh, why do they? Why don't they do their thirty minutes a day? Um, why don't they um, do whatever it is that they know that 
will keep them healthy, as an example in health. But it, 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 it also works within people all working in organisations. Why do people who know that a particular secure option is the right thing to do and is good for the long-term benefit of the company, as an example, go and do something else? And, and I suppose that then comes to, you mentioned uh, Sunstein and, uh, and Tyler, you know, some of their work the, where, where they worked with particularly the UK British, um, what they call it, Behavioural Insights uh, Organisation. And latterly, um, they've also uh, worked in Canberra, um, or at least uh, consulted to, to the Canberra version of that. Um, and some of the states also have, uh, have their own behavioural insights organisations. They call them nudge units. Um, and so from a public perspective, uh, a public policy perspective, this, this idea that if you can get people to do the thing which would be good for them or good for the society, then um, you can save your organisation money, but you can also help those people um, in themselves, I suppose. It, it's, a, it's trying to get a win-win out of these, uh, out of people's behaviour. And so um, I guess that sort of comes from uh, where this dovetails into security for a lot of those people listening, I imagine, is the fact that in any sort of security environment, our biggest challenge is always human factors. Getting people absolutely. to do what it is that we need them to do to provide the best security outcome, whether it be not allowing piggybacking or changing passwords at a regular interval or using strong passwords or not sharing credentials and things like that. So really it's based around this idea of how do we get people to do what we need them to do on the belief that it's in their best interests to do it. Perfect. No, I, I think I think I couldn't I couldn't do better than that. Um, I think that the you know I, I tend to talk about it in terms of saying um, trying to work with with your users the 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 good people that you know maybe oversimplifying the good from the bad but but anyway that that the secure option needs to be the easiest option users face it is is i suppose if you try and drill it down for 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 a quick understanding i suppose in that um, people have to do their jobs you know people aren't employed um, to change their passwords they're employed to pro produce some sort of outcome for their for their organization and um, in the the heat of the moment in under the pressure of you know whatever the people whatever people are doing you know they're trying to answer phone calls they're trying to um, get business whatever they're doing whatever you know their job is they also have to do security and so the question is they have limited um, cognitive space I think is the is the term that um, that Kahneman um, says, it, you can almost think about having limited uh, RAM like a computer, you know, that, that they, they can only run a certain number of programs. And if they're running their program, which is do the work that I need to do, being a receptionist, as an example, 
also doing the program which says I know that I need to change my password once a month or I need to um, you know ensure that nobody's uh, piggybacking and uh, and and such like sometimes those programs don't work and so then 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 from a design perspective the security the CSO of the organization his or her job has to be just to say this I to ask ask themselves you know how do I actually design security within the organization so it is the easiest option users face so is there a way that we can actually design it so that piggybacking is really really hard and people have to intentionally do it um and and uh, as opposed to saying, well, the easiest option is to, to piggyback because it's really hard to get a pass, you know. And so the people who inevitably forget their pass and you know who they are, you know, they're always piggybacking. And you go, well, John or Jane, you know, okay, how do we design it so that John or Jane, if they forget their pass, can't piggyback but can get their can get a replacement pass for the day so that they can get in and do their work. So you're able to give some examples of kind of the sorts of things that you're talking about like that and how you might drive that kind of behaviour? Well, I suppose the, the key point is that not everything works in every organisation. You know, organisations are different and they're not all the same. And I, I suppose one of the key sort of messages that comes out of the behavioral insights uh, uh, community, uh, particularly the UK, is this idea that um, you, you almost need to run mini experiments within your own organization to actually sort of um, firstly find out what works, uh, then design your nudge um, or your behavior changing thing, and then scale. That, that's that's effectively the, the recipe that they they recommend and you know they've been doing it for a long time and um, it cert certainly works for me when I'm working you know because a lot of our work in resilience outcomes is is doing the CISO as a service we go into organizations and we provide um, information security officer um, senior advice but also you know traversing into the CSO sort of space about how do we actually sort of implement good security in a manner which doesn't, which works with the organisational culture. Without naming organisations, can you give me a couple of examples of some things that you've done that have been uh, designed to drive positive, positive security outcomes and, and how it's changed it? What were they doing before and what did you move them to? Okay, so I think, I think, uh, one of you mentioned passwords, um, and 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 that's an interesting interesting dilemma for organisations. Uh, you know, often people uh, you know have problems with password. There's a the written down password issue. There's the password issue which is too short. So, um, and uh, this is um, you know that. There's been quite a bit of research which has gone there, and, and particularly NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards in the US, has uh, uh, done some work on this over a long number of years. And um, if we go into the sort of depths, we talk about the entropy of 
of, uh, of passwords, which is the amount of um, the difficulty of, of getting a computer to actually um, uh, guess a password. So effectively, what you can do is you can is you can run passwords which are difficult for computers to guess, but easy for people to remember. And what we did in one organization was actually say to them, we, we ran a, firstly, we ran an experiment and said, okay, we're going to require you to have 16 character passwords. Now, from an entry per, entropy perspective, that means that effectively it's, it's pretty much the lifetime of the universe before you can guess it um, if it's not on a, on a, um, on a password list. Um, but in exchange, we're going to ex uh, increase the length of time before you have to change your password. Um, and from a security perspective, what, what that does, and again, this is in line with, with the understanding that we, we have from the NIST um, standards side of things, um, we can actually sort of say to people, you can have a really long password and you could have you know, a password like, I don't know, Mary has a little lamb one. And that's really, really long. And it's got, it's got lots of entropy in it, but it doesn't have the traditional, you know, one capital necessarily, um, one weird character. But from a computer perspective, it's really hard to do. So the change management, um, the transformation side of things is very much the discussion with the organization about getting them comfortable to say, we're not gonna let you have the traditional eight character password anymore. We want you to have really long passwords. We're gonna let you keep them for longer. And we, by doing this, we're going to actually improve the security on the organization. Okay, the trade-off is really, you know, instead of forcing you to change your password every 30 days, which is an absolute pain in the backside, we're gonna yep. say, Instead of doing that, we're going to let you have a much longer password that's easier. We're for going you to force remember. you to have a longer password. We're not. Yep. You're not going to be able to have your traditional eight characters, yep. you know, one high, one low, symbol number. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And and so and then then the the nudge process is actually having the conversation, trialing with a with a subset of the users. Um, in the organization I worked with, we used it, we, we, we did it with the, um, with the, uh, the ISSC, the Information Security Steering Committee, who had an interest in this, but they were also managers and so could become uh, uh, the, the advocates for the new policy, could talk to their teams about it. We ran it for a while. We saw that it worked in that we didn't, we, we actually saved the organization in terms of the number of password changes that had to occur. Um, and then we sort of got the decision which said that that happened. And then the scale side of things is then rolling it out to the, to the broader organization. Right. Um, so, so, and as I said, this may, might not work for all organizations and um, you know, uh, you you have to sort of try and work out the ways uh, how your organization works and what the culture is of the organization rather than necessarily forcing things on them and that's where the where the, the trialing and trial and error sort of side of things works 
So um, am I correct then in assuming yeah. that this process begins with, you know, if I was the security manager, I would need to sit down and do an audit and identify all the areas in which people were trying to circumnavigate security. Yep. Probably most likely from just purely a convenience perspective. In other words, what yeah. I'm asking them to do is inconvenient, so they're finding ways around it. And what then are what... the bugbears of the organisation? And yep. you mentioned tailgating, or yep. you know, that's a common one. And we, yep. we hit certainly in the organisation I've been working in with, with for the last uh, few months, that's a, certainly an issue. So how do you deal with tailgating? Yeah. Well, you know, the traditional way is to increase the fines, you know, and or or, or the, the the penalties on the organisation on on tailgating. Um, and 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 you probably have to still think about maintaining some penalties because you can't have you know a free for all. But what you what you on the contrary have to say is well, why is this happening? Yeah, you know, and what what things could we do, which might be able to reduce that, um, uh, and 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 actually reduce the reduce the issue, both from a, a security perspective. Um, because that means that you're getting, I suppose, fewer uh, false positives in terms of people actually tailgating. And so you then don't have to go and follow up on tailgating and, and sort of spend your security um, resources in following that up. Um, at the same time, you want to say, well, okay, this is obviously an issue for the organisation. Is there a difference between locations? Because if you've got if you've got an organisation that has multiple organ, multiple locations, you may be able to sort of quantify uh, differences, and in that you might be able to extract why it's happening. Now, in some cases, and and this has happened to me in a in a in an organisation a year ago, it happened that that one of the organisations one of the locations wasn't recording their their tailbacks, and. And so that caused all kinds of other issues. But it, it's a good thing in some ways that you're having to do the investigation and actually sort of try and identify why this is a problem. So again, you know, it, if there's a differential, there may be two reasons for it. One, the the organisation, uh, the the part of the organisation that's not having to, uh, the 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 people going through um, might be just letting them through and not recording it, or they may have a better procedure. You know, some really smart, you know, receptionist might have a really good procedure for actually sort of doing it. You know, we as security people have to have to talk to the organisation and learn from the organisation. The days of the security officer, and particularly if you are a senior security person with an organisation, just sitting in his or her corner and, and just watching the screens um, are over. Um, if, if they were ever there. Yep. So in the case of tailgating, am I correct in assuming we might say something like, from a behavioural economics point of view, we realise people, uh, for whatever reason, not carrying their badges or not bringing yep. their badges, which is causing them to tailgate. So we are going to tie in our time and attendance system to our access control and say... If you don't badge in at a certain time in the morning and badge out at a certain time in the afternoon and badge in and out for lunch, 
you're financially going to get penalised for that because the system doesn't know that you're at work, so you're not going to get paid for that day or it thinks you've taken longer for lunch, so you're going to get docked for that. So it's in your interests to carry your pass and make sure you're using it properly. That, that's one approach. Another way that, that um, we've done with another organisation is that uh, we, we got rid of passes and gave, uh, gave them an app on their phone. Right. And everybody has their phone. Yep. And so that means that they, you know, it, again, it's about this, um, th- this, this cognitive uh, pressure that, that all of a sudden they don't have to carry two things. When they, when they get up groggy, you know, put on their undies and their shirt and, and, and pants, you know, they don't have to get groggy. They remember their phone because they always do it even on Saturday and Sunday. Yep. But they don't have to worry about their pass anymore. And they've got a pass, works with an NFC chip you know they get in yeah and 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 so so all of a sudden you've got you've got a much better um approach in in that uh you know people aren't forgetting passes issuing passes starts becoming easier because you can do it electronically um you don't have the costs you know so so you know some of those things now again, you can think about some of these sort of more uh, these punitive sides of things as well, um, but I always try and sort of try first with the carrot rather than the stick. I I I I think we need to to have a the bottom the the, the stick has to be reserved for those people who are intentionally doing the wrong thing, if possible, um, rather than necessarily. Um, making it painful for people because otherwise you start getting people, well, they've come back from lunch and they've forgotten their pass and, you know, and you have to have procedures then for issuing them with a temporary pass or or whatever. Um, Yeah. So in the loss prevention world, for example, we see frequently um, situations where people work through, walk through electronic article surveillance systems and set them off and none of the retail workers in the store really pay much attention to it. Yep. But an example of what you're talking about here is I might say, okay, well, I, retail shrinkage is costing our, our shop, you know, $200,000 a year as an example. I'm just making stuff up now. Um, yep. So what we're going to do is we're going to introduce a program where we're going to have um, a mystery person walk through the AAS system once or twice every month or two months and the staff member who responds first gets a $100 gift voucher. Now, over the course of the year, that might cost me $5,000, but you never know whether or not that person who's going through the EAS system is a, a shopper that's doing the wrong thing or a potential gift voucher. So then everyone wants to respond to it. Yep. And I think I think that you know, if you did it from a nudge perspective or from a uh, behavioural economics perspective, you would tr- probably try and e- experiment with that within a location or a sub, uh, a couple of locations. You might try and have two or three locations which were paired in terms of their lossage and you say, well, we'll try it on this one for, for a couple of months and see whether that works. The, the other thing I would say, and, and, and this is where it starts getting quite complex, is in, in your example, there's this idea of loss aversion. So, um, and this again is, is, is about, you know, again, another human characteristic. We get more annoyed if we lose money that we have than if we gain money that we have. So if I give you $100 and take it away, 
you're much much more annoyed than if you uh, potentially uh, potentially going to be given $100. You still have $0 at the end of the exercise either way, but but you are more annoyed with me if, if I give away $100. So I suppose if, 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 if we were brought in as, as the, you know, to do that information or that organisational security assessment side of things, the things that we would do is try and try and use that. So in your example, what I would probably think about is saying, well, maybe there's a pool of $1,000 which gets paid off, paid out at the end of a period, let's say a month, if your individual gets stopped by somebody, right? But if they don't get stopped, that $1,000 just disappears, right? right? And this takes advantage of the loss aversion thing. So all of your workers are saying, well, there's that $1,000. It's sitting above us. And, you know, 31st of, of the month, we'll get, we'll get paid that. And then it disappears. And everybody's asking, oh, did you miss it? Did you miss it? You know, and, and, and so... So then they start thinking about structures for trying to find that. Or you think about, you know, percentages. You know, you're saying, well, our current, our current loss rate is you know, 3% or 5% or whatever it is in the organisation. If we can reduce it by a percent over the next quarter, here's $1,000. Here's that $1,000 sitting in a, you know, on the, you know, as a, as a gift voucher on the wall in the, in the staff canteen. You know those sorts of things seem to seem to work, and I I think this goes to this broader idea of, you know. Security is so much about people. And and understanding how people operate and trying to get people to do the right thing, both the both the the people who are part of your organisation and you need to to get to do the right thing and, and need to actually sort of run, as I call it, the, the security part of their programs, um, as well as trying to stop the baddies um, and, and, the, and the miscreants in, in the area. And, and, and you see, if you, if you had, you know, if you were a large enough organisation with several locations, you can, run, you can run controls effectively where you, can, where you can compare. You might say, you know, you might compare different periods of, um, of assessment. You might uh, compare different amounts. Um, you know, that there, are, there are a number of little control experiments as, as a... Uh, a on top of the, you know, don't change anything, see whether there's any change. Because, you know, it's possible that, you know, God forbid another um, pandemic runs across us and all of a sudden shrinkage comes, goes to zero because there's no people in the shops. Yeah. Right. So, so, so you, you do need, 
you know, ideally you do need those controls. Yeah, and then when you when you sort of said, you know, well, here are our five five organizations and our controls, and we can see that you know we've reduced it by ten percent in one shop, seven percent in one, you know, three percent in another. All right, the one where we've went gone ten, let's let's see whether we can expand that across the whole organization, and sort of say, you know, see how that works. Um, and run it for a six month period and, and see whether or not it, it works as well as we had hoped. Well, Alex, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, if people want to find out more about you, where do they go? Okay, so um, probably best to go firstly to the Resilience Outcomes website, which is just resilienceoutcomes, all one word, dot com. Um, uh, you can, uh, Get us. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn and Facebook and various socials, um, and uh, the organisation blogs at Resilience HQ in the in the Twitter sphere, um, and we we have a we we do a bit of blogging, so you might see some stuff. Fantastic, and also, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to know more about some of the stuff that Alex was talking about today. You can uh, purchase Nudge Theory by Richard Thaler and Daniel Kahneman, uh, either as an audio book or a book from Amazon.com. Daniel Kahneman's also got another fantastic book out called Thinking Fast and Slow, which is available through Amazon. Really recommend it. Yeah, they're, they're fantastic books, definitely worth the read. And if you would like more podcasts like this one, there are tons in the ASIAL series. You can find them on Blurberry, Spotify, iTunes, you, uh, Google Play, and all the good podcast places. And we look forward to seeing you or hearing from you in the next episode. Thank you very much. Thank you.